We are continuing on now in our through the Bible study. We're in Jeremiah 9 this morning, so if you want to grab your Bible and turn to Jeremiah 9, we'll be there uh, in just a moment. I want to mention as we continue this study, we we, we try to break it up with things. I remember telling someone on the first Sunday a long time ago that we were going to teach all the way through the Bible. And uh, he said, wow, that's going to be a bit much. <laughs> I said, yeah, no, we'll, we'll take breaks. We'll do other things. But um, we are, um, next Sunday, we're going to take one week break from this series. But then the very next Sunday, August 6th, I believe it is, we're going to come right back uh, and hit the ground running with actually... Uh, the prophet Habakkuk. We're going to take three weeks and look at Habakkuk, who now begins to minister at the same time Jeremiah is ministering. And after those three weeks, Lord willing, we'll come back uh, into the book of Jeremiah as we try to tie all of this timeline together. I I wonder if you have, like me, ever bought a product because of the great guarantee that came with the product. And uh, you were convinced, boy, this is a really good deal. Look at this guarantee. I mean, uh, this, this just makes perfect sense to buy this. And, and the guarantee seemed fantastic until you actually needed to use the guarantee. And you call the company, and they bounce you from one department to the next, and nobody's willing to help, and you're just getting the old runaround. Or you need the guarantee, and so you, you, you actually read the fine print for the first time, and you realize to your horror that uh, this guarantee is actually only valid in Wyoming uh, on the third Tuesday of October between 9 and 9.15, and only if it's snowing. You know, those kinds of, the fine print sort of thing. And and you realize you've been duped again. You've, you've You've been suckered into believing that something is going to be there for you when you need it, only to realize in the very hour you actually need it, that it's not there for you at all. And I'm assuming this is true for all of us, that the longer we live, the older we get, we begin to uh, sort of awaken to this pattern that we see in this world, that there is nothing in this world that we can put all of our faith in. And I would go so far as to say this, there is no one in this world in whom we can put all of our faith, our hope, our trust, because everything and everyone in this world will let us down eventually. This is a lesson that God's people in Jeremiah's day are now beginning to learn and learn the hard way. God's people, the ones who were supposed to worship him alone, the ones who were supposed to put their trust in him alone, we've seen now over these studies through the prophets especially, that the people had turned their love, their devotion to earthly things, and they began worshiping and trusting in those other things rather than putting their trust in God alone. And we've seen what this has done to the heart of God. God has expressed, we saw this last week, God has expressed his heartache, his feeling of brokenness, that these people who he calls his bride, his beloved bride, have forsaken him for 
We saw last week many other lovers. And his people have <clears throat> turned their back on him. They've abandoned him. But they didn't just stop in, uh, in no man's land. They didn't forsake God and then pursue nothing. As I told you, it's impossible to do that. You cannot choose not to worship God and then not worship anything. You will worship something else. Always. Always. And this is what his people had done. And God is expressing his heartache over this and his grief. <clears throat> and much of his grief is coming from the fact that, as he's telling them through the prophets, <clears throat> there are laws in place in this universe if you forsake God and go your own way, judgment will come. Sin must be punished. And God is saying, my heart is broken, not, be, not just because you've forsaken me for others, but because I hear the clock ticking. Judgment is coming, and I'm begging you to turn around, to come back to me. I will restore you. I will keep this judgment from you, but you must turn back to me. And the people just continue to go their own way. We also got a little glimpse last week of how not only God's heart was broken, but Jeremiah, the prophet, his heart was broken. He's been given the, the nickname, the weeping prophet. And rightly so. As you read through this book, you, you just get a sense of this man. Not only was he, he was a very young man. We saw that on the first week in Jeremiah. A very young man, likely in his late teenage years. We can Nail it down to pretty close there. So maybe even we say 20, early 20s, just to give the benefit of the doubt. But as time goes on and he continues proclaiming the message um, of warning to these people, uh, it really breaks him. And, and he, he doesn't preach out of anger. He preaches through a veil of tears as he loves these people and he's warning these people, pleading with them to come back to God well, now we are in chapter 9 of Jeremiah today, and we see this again uh, in, in how he responds to this. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1, he says this, Jeremiah speaking, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He's, he's so distraught over this that he's saying Something that you've probably experienced, if you're old enough, you've had one of those moments where you've wept so many tears that you're out of tears. You can't cry anymore, and yet your heart is still breaking. Jeremiah says, oh, that my head were filled with water, that I could just continue to cry over what I see happening here. Well, that's one side of the equation of his emotions and his response to this. Here's the other side, though, in verse 2. He's angry at what's going on. He's ticked off at these people. And he says, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. Now, we've experienced that, too. Something that is breaking your heart and frustrating you and not changing no matter what you try. You reach a point where you go, you know what, I just want to be away from this. I can't stand to deal with this anymore. These are the emotions back and forth that Jeremiah is feeling and that he's honestly expressing here. And it's interesting, I want to just point this out quickly in this verse when he uses the word assembly. He says, they're an assembly of treacherous men. That's, um, 
that's quite a play on words that he's using because the word assembly here that he's using is referring to, in a spiritual sense, a congregation. And so he's not just saying, ah, these are a bunch of treacherous men. He's saying, this is a congregation of God's people who are treacherous men, wicked adulterers. See, as I've said before, all of this is being directed to not unbelieving pagans. It's being directed to God's very own people. We haven't had time to look into it, but uh, in one of the earlier chapters, God sends Jeremiah to the um, sort of the gate of the temple. And he says, go stand at the gate. And as my people are coming in to worship me, preach this message of judgment and doom. And these people are, are coming in and it says, and they cry, the temple, the temple, the temple. In other words, they're trying to um, put such a focus on, look, we're at church, so to speak. Look at us. We're, we're here every week. What do you want from us, Jeremiah? We're here in the temple. And yet they were, their hearts were miles away from God, even as they worshiped in the temple. Do you ever have Sundays like that? Do you ever have a day in here when you come and you come to worship the Lord? You're in, again, this isn't his house. This is a building. This is his house. But we're here gathered together. We're worshiping. And and your heart is just filled with all kinds of rotten, filthy, destructive things. You're miles from God. You're here physically, but you're not really here. This can happen to any of us at any time. Jeremiah is distraught over this. He continues in verse 3. And like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. In other words, they're not speaking straight. They're shooting out lies constantly. And they're not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil. And here's a key phrase, and they do not know me, says the Lord. He goes on to describe the lies and the deceit of these people, and then he concludes it in verse 6 by saying this again. He says, Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, says the Lord. Uh, Again, these people knew God. As I've said before, if you woke them up at 2 in the morning and said, Tell me about your God. They could rattle it off by heart. They knew all the history of the Jewish people. They they had heard about all the miracles. They knew all the scriptures. But they didn't know God. Twice here, he pinpoints this as the reason why these people are so off track and so caught up in sinful things. Verse 3, they do not know me. Verse 6, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. There's more than knowing God, more about knowing God than just knowing about him. You can have a head knowledge of God. Even Satan knows the scriptures. He twisted God's word at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? He, He knew what God said. So just showing up at a church service, just quoting a Bible verse, or knowing some spiritual things to say, the end of the day means nothing. Where's your heart? Do you know God? 
If God were to analyze every one of us individually now, what would the outcome of that little encounter be, you think? Could God say of you, could God say of me, wow, he really knows me. He knows me. Well, he goes on describing their rebellious ways, and God now steps into the narrative, and he once again warns them of this judgment that is going to come because of their sin. Now, I want to read these verses, but this is not our focus this morning. We're about to get to the verses that I want to focus on, but I wanted to take just a minute to once again set this stage of just this constant evil taking place, this rebellion against God, and this judgment that is hanging over their heads. So let's pick this up quickly again in uh, verses 11 to 14. God now speaking says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. Who is the wise man who may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken, that he may declare it. Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness, so that no one can pass through? And God gives the answer in verse 13. The Lord said, it's because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, But they have walked according, here it is, to the dictates of their own hearts and after the Baals, after false gods, which their fathers taught them. Again, God is not leaving this up to guesswork. He's not making them try and figure out why all of this is going on, why they're in this position of impending judgment. God has made it clear again and again. I mean, how fair of that. Uh, of God is that. To, to take the time to go, look, I'm not just angry at you because I'm having a bad day. That's how you and I respond to people. God is saying, I must be true to the laws I've set in place. I must be true to judge sin. And the reason this is happening is because you've walked away from my commands. You're not listening to my voice. You're not walking in my ways. Well, it goes on and on describing this. And then now we come to the, these two little verses that I want to focus on this morning. These are probably very familiar verses to you, but I wonder if you've ever heard these verses in the context of what we've just talked about. This, this moment when the nation is filled with sin and evil and violence and deception and God is raising up the Babylonians to the north, this evil pagan nation that he is going to send down to bring judgment on his people. All of this is just right around the corner now. And it's in that context that we read these two quite familiar verses. God says, you've put your trust in, you've put your hope in all the wrong things, and He spells it out in verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might or his strength, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. There it is again. 
that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Now, just very quickly, this word glory, yours may say boast. That's a fair uh, translation of that for sure. This word glory here means to give weight or importance to something or someone. If you glory in someone or something, you are saying, this is important to me. I elevate this above other things. I am glorifying in this. I am the old term. I'm boasting in this. If you go through the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament, he uses this word boasting over and over and over and over again all through there. Um, God has warned now that judgment is coming, but the amazing thing is these people aren't concerned at all. Why is that? Wouldn't you think if you heard the drum beat, if you heard the thunder roll, so to speak, and the dramatic music swells and begins playing, I mean, if you're in a movie, you know something bad is coming. These people have heard the warning, and they're not concerned about it at all. They're going on with their daily life as usual. Why? Because they're trusting in their own wisdom, their own power, and their own riches. And they're convinced that those things are going to see them through whatever comes. This is a strong warning still for us today. I can tell you this principle in Scripture here applies very much to our culture today. So let's look at these three quickly. Wisdom, power, and wealth. First of all, wisdom. This can also mean skill or ability. It's not just uh, mental intellect. Uh, You know, some people I've noticed, uh, scholars and theologians and so on, uh, some people, they pursue knowledge and learning to the point. They glorify it and elevate it to such a point that they gain so much knowledge that they become unteachable. One of the problems with uh, one of the problems with being confident in your own knowledge is that being wrong is not an option. Now, that's a scary place to be, where you have to defend every single thing you you say or have ever said because you cannot afford to be wrong. Look, I'll tell you, I don't know how many hours over the years I've spent studying this book. I can tell you, I am more hungry now than ever before to continue learning this book, to put myself beneath this book, as they used to do to the Old Testament kings when they still had some some godly sense about them, when they anointed the king, they not only put the crown on his head, but it says they put the law of God above his head. And it was a visual symbol saying to this king, we're warning you, you'd better rule beneath the law of God. Some people, and I, you know, when worldly people do this, I can certainly understand it, but what kills me is when people who define themselves as theologians or biblical experts or whatever Uh, And then they go off destroying the Bible and destroying people's lives. You know, they've become so smart in their own learning that they can't be taught a thing. I remember years ago, a friend of mine, uh, well, you know what? I can tell you who it is because he shared this story as well. It was Moose Keller. He said um, 
he went to a Christian gathering somewhere in Greenville, and some folks started chatting with him, and it turned out to be a professor from a Christian college, and um, the guy said something about Scripture, and of course, you know, if you said anything to Moose that was even, not even maybe closely related to God's Word, he was going to give you like 15 verses. Uh, I mean, he, he must have been able to quote half the Bible by heart. And so Moose shared a Bible verse with this guy, and he said this guy reared back and said, you're going to teach me the Bible? And Moose chuckled and said, no, no. Now that affected him deeply. He, he never forgot that. And he would always drum into me in you know, my 38 years of him being one of my mentors. He would drum into me again and again, always stay teachable. Always stay teachable. There's this danger in pursuing wisdom, in pursuing knowledge, <clears throat> thinking that it's going to give you everything you need. But here's, <clears throat> here's the difference. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, that's not saying the fear of the Lord is just the first step, and then you can go on and pursue wisdom however you like. It means the fear of the Lord is the only path to wisdom. I've lived long enough to, to see enough things, to, to read enough books by now, that I know that any pursuit of wisdom without the fear of the Lord always leads a person to some level of madness. I can say that with certainty. I mean, you can, you can go back as far as you want to in so-called brilliant people who've written, you know, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, all the way up to the, the modern-day self-acclaimed religious intellects. And I can tell you that a pursuit of wisdom apart from the fear of the Lord has never actually produced wisdom at all. Isaiah 47.10 says this, Your wisdom and your knowledge have led you astray. It literally means it has perverted you. Your wisdom and your knowledge has perverted you. It's led you astray, and you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one else besides me. You've got to be very careful of people who claim to be wise and learned. Make sure that they are basing all of that on the fear of the Lord. But it's not just intellectual prowess that the world glorifies. Um, our world, I mean, I think I would be safe to say our world deifies people with certain physical talents and skills and abilities. Look at how athletes are praised. I mean, it's beyond absurd. I thought, you know, I haven't looked this up in a while, so I just wanted to see what the latest numbers were, just to show you how our world deifies people who can kick a ball or swing a bat. Uh, Lionel Messi, I know none of y'all know soccer, so whatever, Philip does. My, my buddy Philip, we know soccer. Um, Lionel Messi, soccer player, signed a contract for $674 million for four years, which means he makes $4.4 million per game. Cristiano Ronaldo, soccer, 
$536 million for two and a half years, which means he makes $7.1 million for 90 minutes. Patrick Mahomes, Kansas City Chiefs, $450 million for 10 years, $2.5 million per game. Canelo Alvarez, professional boxer, $365 million for five years, but they don't have near as many matches as they do in soccer. So this guy makes $33.1 million per match. When there are people starving to death in our world because they don't have enough food to eat. When teachers and firemen and, and people who truly are the backbone of our society are barely making ends meet. You see what our world is doing. We are deifying people with certain skills and talents. Wisdom, it's another form of glorifying wisdom or someone's ability. It's not just wisdom, God also mentions power in this verse. This can be interpreted strength and dominance as well. You know, nations boast in their military power. Huge corporations boast in their, uh, in their net worth. Individuals boast in their achievements. We see this all the time. And I always think, you know, when I, when I come to this verse, I always think about Muhammad Ali. I mean, what, what more glaring example is there than a man who lived his life boasting about his power? He said over and over again, I am the greatest of all time. Remember that? It's like, what's with the whispering, dude? You're... <laughs> Biden's doing that same thing, you know? <laughs> I am the greatest of all time. Look how pretty I am. Remember, he would just, I mean, he just went on and on and on. You know what? Did you see how Ali ended his life? He came to the conclusion of his life, frail and trembling and not even able to put a sentence together. You see, power, oh, you can boast in it all you want, but folks, it's going to fade. It's going to fail you. David, speaking about the death of King Saul, said in 2 Samuel 1.19, Oh, how the mighty have fallen. The mighty have fallen. Instead of trusting in God, the nation of Judah, who, which is where we are now with Jeremiah, God's people in Judah, they actually made alliances with ungodly nations in, in an effort to protect themselves from this coming judgment uh, from Babylon. <clears throat> they, uh, they made an alliance with the pagan nation of Egypt. I mean, imagine this, knowing their history. God reminded them again and again, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. And they go, yeah, Egypt seems like a good place for us to turn uh, to, um, to have the, the military power that we need to withstand God's judgment that's coming. It's unbelievable. And so they formed this alliance with Egypt, thinking that this power was going to stay off God's judgment. God had already warned them through the prophet Isaiah this, in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me and look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. Verse 3, but, uh uh-oh, but Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. 
Psalm 33, 16 says it this way, No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. What are you trusting in this morning? You trusting in your physical power, your physical strength, your health, your good health? You trusting in your good health? You trusting in your prominent position? I mean, you've worked hard, and man, you've climbed the ladder, and you have a position of power and authority, and, and you maybe think that you are untouchable. You trusting in uh, the power you have to control situations or the important people that you know? I'm telling you, all of those things are going to fade away one day. And then what are you going to have to sustain you? You're going to be just like God said uh, would happen to Egypt. <clears throat> what they thought was protection would bring them shame. Well, wisdom, and then power, and then thirdly, he mentions wealth. This can also be interpreted abundance or excess I mean, you can't help but notice how our world glorifies wealth. Remember the lifestyles of the rich and famous with Robin Leach. Uh, now they have shows, the entire series, I understand, where celebrities do nothing but show off their cribs. You know what I mean? Your cribs, you young people know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> And they just, it's a whole show, apparently, of them walking through the house going, yeah, look at this, look at my, uh, my six Lamborghinis. And, my... and people tune into this, like, drooling over, going, oh, aren't they wonderful? Isn't he fabulous? Uh, you notice there's never been a game show called Who Wants to Be Poverty Stricken? But there certainly was one called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Because we glorify wealth. People put their, listen, the sad thing is there are some people who put all of their hopes in the next lottery ticket. You understand? Their future is riding on this. And I dare you sometime to study the statistics of lottery winners. It will blow your mind. Almost without exception, every one of them end up with shattered relationships and broken dreams and in, in eventual poverty. Jesus once told a story, uh, Luke um, uh, 12, told a story of a, of a rich man who uh, had just had a, a bumper year. I mean, man, he had it just pouring in, and he, he said to himself, well, look at all this stuff I've gathered for myself. What in the world am I going to do with it? I don't even have room to put it all. So he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my, my warehouses, so to speak, you know, my barns, and I'll build bigger ones, and then I'll have space to store all this stuff that I've accumulated. And then I'm going to say to myself, boy, you, uh, you've really done well. Um, you've, uh, you've got enough to last you for years, so just kick back, eat, drink, and be merry. God said, thou fool. This very night, your soul will be required of you. And then who will those things be that you've stored up for yourself? Trusting in riches? Trusting in your 401k? There's nothing wrong with any of those things. Please don't read into what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with any of that unless it has a 
control on you unless it owns you. People think wealth is going to bring them happiness and security. They couldn't be more wrong. Ezekiel 28 says this, With your wisdom and your understanding, you've gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in trade, you've increased your riches, and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. If you want to know the right balance in these things, here it is. I don't know, you know, maybe just a few verses equal to this to help give us this balance. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7. Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. That's a beautiful balance to strive for. God, I don't necessarily want to be poor, but I don't want to be owned by a, a lust for wealth either. God, would you, would you give me my daily bread and just keep me in the place you need me to be so that I'll always look to you for what I need? So God's people in this day, they knew judgment was coming, but they were relying on their wisdom, their power, their wealth, God says, they were convinced that those things were going to keep them safe when judgment came. And there are still people today who believe the very same thing. Oh, the wording might be a little different, but we still have these same gods to grapple with in our modern world. People today actually believe that they'll be able to escape judgment on that day. The Bible talks a lot about that day, capital D, that day of judgment. People think uh, they're going to be able to escape that because of their great intellect or because of their powerful connections or because of their wealth or status. And I'm telling you, my heart breaks for them because they are in for a rude awakening. I had one man tell me years ago one time he was bitter at God, hated God. And he said, oh, I can't wait to see God. I got a few things to get off my mind. And I said, would you please let me be there to watch? <laughs> this is how some people think. Well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to really tell God a thing or two. Are you now? Are you? Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, says these sobering words. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, and even every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. That's the reality. No matter what you've amassed or accumulated or achieved in this life, it all may be well and good, but folks, none of it is a guarantee for you when this life is over. In fact, it's not even a guarantee for you in this life. But I'm telling you, 
A day of judgment is coming when even the greatest people who have ever lived, who took no lip from anybody on this earth, those very people will cry out and run and say, let the mountains fall on me. I cannot face this God. No one without Christ will be able to escape this judgment. No one. God warned the people in Jeremiah's day that they were boasting and they were relying in the wrong things, things that have no real power, that offer no actual security. And the warning to them should be a warning to us as well. What are we anchored to right now? What are you tethered to for the next storm that's going to blow through? Where is your trust? Where's your confidence? Where's your hope? Well, God answers that for us in verse 24, and we'll wind it down with this. He said in Jeremiah 9, 24, don't, don't boast in your wisdom, your power, your wealth, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment or justice is the real word, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. Now, maybe, maybe you're sitting here thinking, Phil, I was paying attention last week, and you said that none of us will ever be able to fully understand God in this life. His ways are above our ways. Absolutely true, and you get a dollar after the service for remembering that from last week. It's true. We will never be able to fully understand God in this life, but God, here's the amazing thing, God has promised to reveal himself to those who obey his commands and uh, who seek him. Here's an example, John 14, 21. Jesus said, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and will manifest or show or reveal myself to him. Are you kidding me? The God of the universe has promised that if you obey his commands, if you seek him, he will reveal himself to you. This is expanded further upon in 1 John 5.20. Boy, John loved to write about this topic. He said, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. God gives... uh, Three things not to trust in, wisdom, power, and wealth. And then he gives us three things we can trust in, we can build our lives upon. His loving kindness, the word is hesed, it's one of the most beautiful words in the entire Old Testament. It means it's not just steadfast love, it is that, but it's truly his covenant love. It means that he loves you based on his covenant And he will never break that covenant. Even if he has to discipline you, he surely will. But this steadfast love is one of the things he mentions here in this verse that we can build our lives upon, we can put our trust in. The next one is justice and then his righteousness. Hey, if you're going to boast about anything, boast about God's steadfast love for you. Boast about his 
fair and right justice, boasts about how he practices righteousness. Just think about how precious those three things are to you if your life has been changed by the power of Jesus Christ. Boast in his steadfast love. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, if you've been saved, it's not because of anything you did. If you've been saved, it's all because of the love of God that he demonstrated towards you in Christ. He loves you. You want to know something rock solid you can put your hope in? We've all had people in this life who said, I love you. I'll stick with you. And then they didn't. And so we have this tainted view of love. When we hear God say, I love you with an everlasting love, my covenant love for you is steadfast. It will never waver. We go, "Mm, not sure about that. I've never seen that. (laughs) And and so we have a hard time believing that. Folks, if you want something rock solid to put your, your trust and your hope in, you can trust completely in his steadfast love because it will not only keep you and see you through this life, it will keep you for all eternity. Psalm 147, 11, the Lord delights in those who fear him, in those who hope in his unfailing love. If we need something to boast about, let's boast about the steadfast love of God. What about his justice? We should boast in his justice. Justice is sometimes a scary word in this world because, you know, often we see justice unfairly dispensed by the people in this world, but we can boast in God's justice. His justice says, because my son took your sin upon himself, and because he bore the judgment for your sin, my justice now declares you spotless and blameless in my sight. That's the kind of justice I want. I don't want a George Soros' appointed attorney ruling over my case. Heaven help us if that ever happens to any of us. We see what's happening in this land with crooked justice. It's horrific what we see happening. God's justice is always right. David, when he had to choose his punishment for his sin, he's like, hey, let me fall into the hands of God. I, I, I trust his justice completely. I don't trust the justice of men. Isaiah thirty eighteen, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Kevin, I didn't even tell you to read that today, man. I mean, I know we spent like four hours together yesterday in a meeting, but honestly, that was incredible. He gets up here and reads this verse. God, listen, our God is a God of justice, the right kind of justice, the kind of justice you want in your life. And we should boast in that. And finally, we should boast in God's righteousness. Because all of us are guilty of sin, there's absolutely nothing that any of us could do to ever um, merit a life worthy of entering into God's holy presence. And yet, because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, All who put their faith in him receive his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God made him, that's Christ, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You want to talk about something you can boast about? 
boast in that? Do we ever boast in that? Do we ever glory in that? The fact that God loves us so much that he sent his son to take our place on the cross, to endure the judgment that was ours. And all who put their faith in him are declared righteous. All those other things, folks, in this world that you can supposedly depend on, all the things that come with a great guarantee, they're all going to let you down sooner or later. But the God of steadfast love and perfect justice and righteousness never, ever will. So let me ask you as we close, where is your life? Where is your hope? Where is your security anchored this morning? The thing is, you cannot lead a dual life. Uh, you, you cannot have your fingers clawing into the things of this world and have your trust and your hope in God at the same time. Everyone and everything on this earth is going to pass away. The things you're holding on to so tightly today, a day is coming when they're going to run through your fingers like water. And you'll be left with nothing. So what will last forever? Oh man, look at this, John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That they may know you, there it is again, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the only thing that will matter when life is over, folks. Let me ask you this morning. Do you know him? Or do, do we know him like the people in Judah knew him? They knew all about him. But God says, they don't know me at all. They don't know me at all. Do you know him this morning? There's only one way to do that. Jesus is the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Have you ever taken that step? Are you still clinging to and depending on and trusting in and hoping in the things of this world? You hoping in your marriage relationship? Well, I trust that it'll go well. We pray that it will. We'll do everything we can to help with that. But there's no guarantee. Trusting in your job? Trusting in your health? Your bank account, on and on and on we could go. Folks, it's empty trust. <clears throat> Don't spend your life chasing after wisdom and power and wealth and the list of all those other things because you're going to end up empty when it's all over. There's only one place you'll ever find the peace you're searching for if you choose not to miss it. I close with this one verse, Luke chapter 19, verse 41. This is describing Jesus as he came to Jerusalem. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently, but you don't even realize that the scriptures point to me. And so you don't come to me to have life. I encourage you today, folks, take some time to examine what you're depending on, where your trust is, where your hope is. 
Turn it back to God. If you've never been saved, that's your first step. I encourage you to come to Christ today. Confess your sin to him and cry out to him for salvation. You will find the hope and the justice and the righteousness that you will not find anywhere else. Let's pray. Lord, it is so uh, incredibly easy, so dangerously easy for us to um, sort of come to our senses one day and look around and realize, boy, we, we have sunk our roots deep into so many things. And we're just kind of crossing our fingers and hoping that none of it goes away. We're just hoping that, that, that uh, we're going to make it through with our hope in all these things Lord, I I pray you would open our eyes this morning to see the futility of that. And I pray, God, you would put within us a fresh desire to turn back to you, to put our hope and our trust in you, to glory in you. Rather than glorying in the things of this life. We pray, Lord, you would apply this word to our hearts as it needs to be. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart I want to see